The x-rays show that your puppy swallowed a penny. Sparky, is that serious, doctor? No, but you can get serious savings at BJ's Gas. You can buy a gallon with that very penny once it <clears throat> reappears. Ew. I see another penny. Keep looking. You can get gas as low as one cent per gallon during BJ's Wholesale Club's gas event. For each fuel saver item you buy, you'll save 10 cents per gallon on your next fill-up at BJ's Gas within 30 days of purchase. BJ's. <clears throat> Absurdly simple savings. $99 or 40 gallon maximum, whichever comes first. Go to BJ's.com slash gas for offer terms and a list of participating items. Please don't feed pennies to dogs. Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, I'm Georgine Rice. This week, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit addresses the FDA's fast-tracked approval of the abortion pill. What the FDA had to do, they decided to fast-track approve this during the Clinton administration. But to use the fast-track authority, the FDA had to call pregnancy an illness. And the revealing conduct of the abortion lobby. The abortion industry will do everything that they can to keep women from being able to choose yeah. life. We'll look at the great de-churching of our nation. One in six adult Americans used to go to church at least once a month, but now less than once per year. And a key piece of the puzzle. When somebody is moving... The most important thing that you can do, help that person finding a good, healthy local church. I'm Georgine Rice, and I'm glad to be with you once again. I'm coming to you from Portland and my home station of KPDQ. And I'm pleased to announce that my program is also live in Seattle on 820 AM, The Word. You can catch that stream at thewordseattle.com. And catch the stream of my home station here in Portland at kpdq.com. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin with the issue of life. In June of last year, the U.S. Supreme Court released the Dobbs decision, stating in language that still moves me every time I hear it, Roe and Casey are overruled, and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. The abortion industry didn't waste any time responding. They knew that many states were prepared to protect the unborn, and thus they began aggressively pushing the abortion pill in order to mail the drug across state lines. But the means by which this drug made it to the market in the first place were nefarious. I'll let our guest explain. Eric Baptist of ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom, was a guest of Scott Furrow on KKLA in Los Angeles. So tell us what's happening with the abortion pill, Mifeprestone, and there have been a few decisions. See, and this changes things with the different states having different rules about abortions, limitations, 15 weeks, six weeks, no abortions, different things. It's an entirely different conversation if the pills can be mailed over state lines. And so describe this issue to us. Yeah, and before I worked on this case, I didn't even know all the facts behind it because I used to, they still do, I go pray outside of the local abortion facility and think the brick and mortar abortion facility is what most people do. In reality, over 50%, maybe even 60% of all abortions are committed by chemical means and largely within the homes, dorm rooms, or bathrooms of women across this country. It's Did no you say 60% now? Six zero, 60%. Correct. Yeah, that's huge. People need to understand that. And so what last year when the Supreme Court issued its Dobbs decision, overturning Roe v. Wade, one of the things it said was the, the promise of Dobbs was to return the issue of abortion back to the people and their elected representatives. But ever since the Dobbs decision, the Biden administration in particular has sought to undermine those states and those people who have decided to protect life and women who are harmed by abortion by mailing these drugs across state lines to states where these restrictions and protections reside. And so 
the promise of Dobbs cannot be fulfilled unless the abortion pill or chemical abortion drugs are taken off the marketplace or basic protections are put back into place that the Biden administration in particular have removed. We had a uh, guest on a while ago who was an OBGYN who was describing what this pill does and the difficulties that women actually have. It's not communicated. It's another thing where the dangerous side to this and then what actually happens to your body, what you have to go through after. It's not just you take a pill and forget about it. It is a traumatic thing that's going to happen to women when they take this pill, but no one's talking about the danger of it. Correct. It's a two-drug regimen. The first one, as you said, is mifepristone. That essentially ends the unborn life inside the mother. The second one is misoprostol, and that induces labor and delivery uh, of the baby from the mother. And so what happens is, because the Biden administration says you no longer have to see a doctor, you never have to have an in-person visit to determine you have any complications, and you can do this from, they say, the comfort of your own home, but really it's not the safety of your own home. It's not even the safety of a medical facility. It's doing it by yourself. So when women go through this horrific incident where they have this induced miscarriage and an abortion at home, we have stories upon stories where women are just horrified by what they see once the Mm -hmm. baby comes out of them. They have been lied to. They didn't realize what they were doing to themselves and to their unborn baby. This case revolves a lot around the FDA and their decision to allow this pill to be distributed. What did the FDA do wrong in uh, their evaluation of this medicine? Well, I will answer that with a rhetorical question. What did they do right? Right. Because from the beginning, what the FDA had to do, they decided to fast track approve this during the Clinton administration. But to use the fast track authority, the FDA had to call pregnancy an illness, which we all know is passed. Wow. I didn't know that part. Yeah. And so this is part of our lawsuit. We said, well, they used the wrong approval pathway. And by doing so, they had to call pregnancy an illness. And one of the judges of our court from last week asked the FDA's attorneys, the U.S. Department of Justice, and said, uh, because when we had oral argument in front of the court, it's right after Mother's Day. They said, do we celebrate an illness on Mother's Day? Because he was like, how can the FDA with a straight face call pregnancy an illness? But that's exactly what the FDA had to do. They were supposed to study the effects of this drug on teenage girls because there's a law and a rule that requires that. They weighed that requirement. So again, we don't know the short-term or long-term impacts of girls who get this drug. And frankly, there's no age minimum to this drug. So anybody can get this drug without parental consent, without knowledge. And that is what's happened across the United States. And, And a basic requirement of the FDA by Congress when they delegated this authority to the FDA is when you have a drug and you approve it, Based on this labeled use and its instructions, you should have safety tests that show that the drug is safe and effective for the use on the label. Mm. One thing the FDA has never done in its 22 years of this drug has studied the actual labeled use of this drug. They always have additional protections, such as an ultrasound, when they conduct these studies. But what we know is there's never been a requirement to conduct an ultrasound to identify life-threatening ectopic pregnancies or to even determine gestational age because the FDA once said it was up to seven weeks. Now it's 10 weeks. As the baby gets older, more complications are likely to occur. And they just have refused to do anything about it. This is a huge scandal, uh, you know, scientifically. We're living in an age when we don't trust our institutions anyway. And, you know, every time I see a drug advertised on TV, you know, it tells me how great it's going to be for me. But then there's the fine print and the guy who talks really fast at the end. You know, he says, you know, don't use this if you like to live in the daytime. Don't do all this. It's going to cause all these things. It's going to cause diarrhea and, and, and sore joints or death. They have to put that in there, right? But they're not doing that so much with this drug. Is that correct? Well, they are not even tracking the complications. So it's very unfortunate. But one thing the FDA has never done is required emergency room doctors or doctors actually treat women for these complications to report these adverse events. But the one thing in 2016 that the end of the Obama administration that they required or took away was 
not reporting any non-fatal complications. So a woman could go to the emergency room, have to be resuscitated twice, almost bleed out to death. And the FDA says, we don't want to know about that complication. Mm. And then during the Biden administration says, well, we're not getting a lot of information on complications. So we think this is going to be okay. And we can remove the requirement to at least have an in-person visit. And you can just have this by done by mail. And the courts have repeatedly now struck down the FDA's decisions based on such flawed data reporting. So where is it at in the courts now? And what is the next step here? Well, we wanted the district court and all of our claims to take the drug off the marketplace because the approval was illegal, because pregnancy is not an illness. So does that mean it's completely off the marketplace now? You can't well, get it? No, there, there was, unfortunately, in April, the Supreme Court hit the pause button on our victories. That's right. Uh, one could argue that we were winning too much too quickly after 22 years of having this drug on the marketplace. The Supreme Court hit the pause button and says, let's go through this the normal appeals process. So just last week, we won on the, on the Court of Appeals, striking on the Obama era and Biden era changes to this regimen, which were highly dangerous to women and girls who take this drug. And now the Biden administration says they're going to take this on appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. They typically have 90 days. So maybe by November, we'll see an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court by the Biden administration on this. We'll keep you updated as this case will likely appear before the nation's highest court. I'd like to highlight a revealing aspect of the ongoing battle over the abortion pill. It's really a two-pill regimen. If a woman has second thoughts about her decision to have an abortion, a relatively simple treatment of the hormone progesterone has proven to be very promising in preserving that pregnancy and thus preserving the life of the unborn baby. But there is fierce opposition. Here's Nicole Hunt of Focus on the Family, again with Scott Furrow. Nicole, what's the pushback? Has there been any official, you know, pushback that says, no, this is bad? Because it does seem to me that this is hard to argue against because really it's not, you know, certainly it's pro-life in the sense that you are giving women an, a better opportunity to choose life. But if you're genuinely pro-choice, then you would support a choice of life the same as you might support a choice of death. Is there any pushback that we should be aware of yet? Yeah, you know, you bring up a very, very good point because a lot of individuals would like to say that they are pro-choice. And in fact, for a long time, the abortion industry said that they were. <laughs> right. The truth is, is that primarily they're just pro-abortion That's now, right? right? It's, it's about being, what is going to save the bottom line for the abortion industry? How are they going to save their business model? And the truth is, is that the abortion industry, they sell one thing for a living and it's abortions. Mm. That is the one thing that their business model is built off of. And so, of course, they push back on this all of the time. And what we've heard, although we haven't seen this exact legislation in Colorado, but what we have heard every time, something similar or something that just promotes life. Like, for instance, pregnancy resource centers were targeted this last legislative cycle in Colorado. And, of course, what you hear them say is that, they are being deceptive, right? So the abortion industry says that the pregnancy health organizations are being deceptive and they're deceiving women into coming to them for help. Never mind the fact that individual mom after mom after mom got up and gave testimony saying that these pregnancy health organizations helped me. Yeah. <laughs> they helped me find resources. Instead, what you hear is that they're trying to deceive. And this is just a nefarious way to create more opportunities for women who want to get abortions to take that opportunity away from them. And so that is the common line that we're hearing from these abortion industry handlers, I will say in Colorado, and I wonder if California will soon see this, this last legislative cycle, they tried to ban 
abortion pill reversal, which is the treatment of progesterone. So in the first 48 hours after a woman begins the first chemical abortion pill, if instead of taking the second pill, they get onto a strict regimen of progesterone, which women have been prescribed for the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. If you have a pregnancy that, for instance, is not doing well and you want to try to save the baby or you're just trying to get pregnant, you get progesterone as a woman and then that helps you (laughs) to keep your baby or to get pregnant. And so the treatment is progesterone. And about 60, a little bit more than 60% of the time, these women are able to save their babies because they've had a change of heart. So you'd think this is something that is very pro-choice, right? A woman who started an abortion and changes her mind and now wants to save her baby. And the abortion industry has gone after them. And so right now in Colorado, it's basically in limbo. Uh, The law went into effect and then our attorney general had to say, okay, we're not going to enforce it quite yet because they were immediately sued by a, a public interest law firm on behalf of a Catholic health clinic, actually. And so the rules are currently being stipulated, but sometime around October, we're expecting the rules to come out. And if the rules say by the health organizations, say it's okay for the state to prosecute these healthcare organizations that help women get this pill, then it's very likely that we're going to see ourselves, see this lawsuit back in in motion again. But the point is, is that the abortion industry will do everything that they can to keep women from being able to choose life. Coming up, the great de-churching. One in six adult Americans used to go to church at least once a month, but now less than once per year. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv and on Local Now, Channel 525. The following is a real Balance of Nature customer sharing a real success story. Balance of Nature is fruits and vegetables. So this is actually what your body needs every day. When I take Balance of Nature, I know I'm putting things in my body. It makes me positive, makes me feel good. Get 40% off your first order using discount code REAL. Go to balanceofnature.com. This Labor Day offer ends September 5th. Balanceofnature.com. Code REAL for 40% off. Balanceofnature.com. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Our nation is becoming more secular. And as the nation becomes more secular, fewer Americans are attending church on a weekly basis. That may not surprise you. I know I see it and feel it here at home in the city of Portland. But the magnitude of the changes we're seeing may well surprise you. Michael Graham is co-author of The Great De-Churching, Who's Leaving, Why They're Going, and What Will It Take to Bring Them Back? He joined Brian Fraun and Aubrey Sampson, hosts of The Common Good, on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, in Chicago. Help people understand the landscape of what you see going on out there that caused you to write this book. 
Yeah, so Jim Davis, uh, my fellow author, and I were both pastors um, here in Orlando, Florida, mm. and we we had read some anecdotal data that said about 40% of our city used to go to church and now didn't anymore. Oh, wow. And so we felt like, okay, well, we need to know more about this. This was about five years ago. And so uh, we began to do a lot of research, and there wasn't much out there in terms of recent data on those things. And we had a podcast called As in Heaven that we wanted to do an entire season on what was going on in de-churching. Mm. And basically, we realized that if we're going to do a whole season on that, then we actually need to commission all new research on this. So we weren't originally going to write a book, but then what we learned from it was just so shocking and mm. you know, kind of earth shattering that we're like, well, it would be irresponsible for us to just you know, just leave this in the audio medium. Yeah. So we probably need to actually write this up in a, in a book. So. Okay. So I, I mean, I, backstory. I know you don't want to like give away all the incredible nuggets, but I am just as a church leader, as a church goer, really curious about what some of the findings are. What were some of the things that were the most surprising for you and your co-authors? Yeah. So at the highest altitude, what you're talking about is one in six adult Americans used to go to church at least once a month, but now less than once per year, basically. Oh, wow. wow. So that's, that's 40 million uh, U.S. adults. And almost all of those people left in the last 30 years, kind of began originally with the mainline churches and then progressed to the Roman Catholic Church. And then evangelicals are playing dramatic catch up basically from the <laughs> mid 90s until about now. <laughs> evangelicals always a little late to the game. Um, but uh, <laughs> the uh, evangelical de-churching is about 15 million people. And then the mainline and Roman Catholic de-churching is about 20 million. Wow. So some of the more surprising things that we learned would be, uh, there's definitely some misconceptions. So 30 of those 40 million people didn't leave with very negative experiences. Mm. Hmm. About 10 million left with really negative experiences. And I don't mean to diminish, undermine, or like say anything, you know, negative about, you know, those people. I mean, you know, there are some people who had some really, really horrible experiences. Sure, sure. So, but about three quarters of the people who left are what we call casually dechurched. Hmm. You know, they dechurched because um, the number one reason for overall is somebody moved. Basically, you know, anytime somebody has something in their life that, that messes with their rhythms and their habits, those are moments basically when people teach. So mm. um, uh, some form of marital change, uh, a new child, COVID, um, all those kinds of uh, unemployment, kind of, you know, all those kind of life shifts yeah, wow. are kind of typically where, you know, three quarters of people are kind of taking that off ramp. You know, it's just their, their habits and rhythms change. Another thing that was really surprising is it's not really happening because of the secular university. So only 3% of evangelicals who grew up in church who got graduate degrees end up de-churching. Okay, wow. And so th that's dramatically less than the rest of the population. So now people are leaving. The most susceptible time that people are to leaving um, church is in the 18 to 29-year-old mm. oh. But I think it's a little bit of a misnomer that it's to, to say, you know, to tie that basically back to the secular university. Mm. Yeah. It look like it's, it's there in the data. I think there's other things that are going on during that time of life and phase of life that's um, kind of contributing more to that. Right. right. Um, another thing that's surprising is the kind of beliefs of people who are uh, leaving, particularly among de-churched evangelicals. Of the de-churched evangelicals, I would say 10 of the 15 million who've left 
did not have a Nicene Creed level Christianity oh, wow. in terms of like an understanding of, you know, who Jesus was, the purpose of the, you know, the cross, the atonement, the resurrection, you know, reliability of the Bible, those different kinds of things. But five million do seem to have a pretty deep understanding of the faith and who have left. And those people are really interesting. So in the book, we, we outline five different profiles of different types of people who have left um, houses of worship um, in America. And there's very wide ranging differences in demographics, reasons why people left, willingness to return Hmm. and conditions under which people would be willing to return. Hmm. So I think a, a lot of the value proposition of, you know, the research that we've done here is to basically help clear the air. You know, if, if, if de-churching and all, of every, all the conversations that are around that are foggy, what we're trying to do is basically get out a, a really large wind machine, yeah. clear the air, demystify everything, make it clear so that people can say, oh, like, Susie in my life, well, she looks a little bit like this profile, yeah. a little bit like this mm. profile. And so she needs a nudge for me or, yeah. Yeah. you know, Tommy, you know, Tommy needs to be at my dinner table, you know, for a while. And we, we got to have more of a relationship. Mm. And then, you know, somebody else who's probably, you know, we could be, I could be in their life for years, but they're probably still not going to return just because of some of the things that they've seen and they've experienced. Yeah, so I think it helps to you know just yeah, kind of so give people some rails to run on and in in establish some expectations. That's interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that book seems very necessary right now. Let me ask you this question: How much energy should churches and pastors be expending in trying to bring people back? Or, you know, obviously, if you have a family member or this night, you're going to be wanting to know and you're going to reach out. But you know, there's a train of thought that says churches should worry about who's in the building versus who's going out. What what is your kind of pastoral sense as to how churches should deal with this kind of data? So one of the things that we want to do is we want to inspire both individuals and institutions to do better. A lot of that just happens to, to, to boil down to how we relate to people. And so I do think churches need to be just as concerned about their back door as they are about mm -hmm. their front door mm. and as they are about sending out the people who are there better equipped in their communities. Mm. And so we built a whole other website, dechurching.com, and we built a whole other basically ebook that's a lot shorter than this one, specifically for local churches. It's got like a 20-point checklist and audit of things that you can do to help, you know, close the back door, open the front door, that's and great. send out people better equipped in their context. Mm -hmm. So, that, you know, that resource is out there. But, you know, if you're listening to this and you're a church leader, the number one thing that I want to, you know, just encourage you with and maybe just, you know, gently exhort you on is moving. The most low-hanging fruit that we can do is surrounding moving. It is mm -hmm. an emergency when somebody is moving from, you know, you know, in your community to a different community. The most important thing that you can do, whether that's for you're a ministry leader, you know, on the institutional side of things, or if you have a friend that's moving to a new place, help that person do some due diligence on finding a good, healthy local church mm, in gotcha. the community where they're moving. That's the that's the number one thing mm. that anybody who's listening to this can do is just help people in that in that process that they're moving and just follow up with them and you know see if you know yeah. see how that process is going wow. you know a couple you know a couple months after you know they're in a new community coming up 
the Bible actually says, pray for the peace and prosperity of the city in which God has put you, because if it prospers, you also prosper. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. It's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. When I grow up, I want to work for a woke company, like super woke. When I grow up, when I grow up, I want to be hired based on what I look like rather than my skills. I want to be judged by my political beliefs. I want to get promoted based on my chromosomes. When I grow up, I want to be offended by my coworkers and walk around the office on eggshells and have my words policed by HR. Words like grandfather, peanut gallery, long time no see, no can do. When I grow up, I want to be obsessed with emotional safety and do workplace sensitivity training all day long. When I grow up, I want to climb the corporate ladder just by following the crowd. I want to be a conformist. I want to weaponize my pronouns. What are pronouns? It's time to grow up and get back to work. Introducing the number one woke-free job board in America, redballoon.work. Hey, everyone, this is Jordan Seculo. You've spoken, and we've heard you loud and clear. That's why this month we're doing something big. We're proud to announce our brand-new ACLJ Life and Liberty Drive. Our legal teams will be focusing on the issues that you, our ACLJ members, have told us matter the most to you, life and religious liberty. We're redoubling our efforts to beat back the radical left's attack on your constitutional religious freedoms and to defend the sanctity of human life. Life and liberty are the cornerstones of our great nation. They're not guaranteed. When the values we hold dear are under attack, it's up to all of us to take a stand or risk losing them forever. This is not just a call to fund our legal battles. This is your moment to get in the fight. Just as before, every tax-deductible gift will be doubled, dollar for dollar, through the ACLJ Life and Liberty Drive, giving you twice the impact to defend your freedoms and help us fight to literally save lives. Join the ACLJ in the fight to keep America free. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. Why was I chosen to live in an increasingly secular 21st century America? Why has God placed me here and now? If you've ever felt that way or something similar, I think you'll appreciate my friend and recent guest, Heidi St. John. She's a homeschool mom of seven a podcaster and author of MomStrong 365, a daily devotional to encourage and empower everyday moms. She was a guest on my program. Our family has always been at the front lines of what's going on in the culture and believing that this is our time. We were born for this time in human history. And I don't think God's looking down at this generation going, man, I sure picked the wrong people for the, ba- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, for the battle. And I think it's worth fighting. God loves the people of this world. We know it because his word boldly declares it. And uh, right now we're under attack in every area of the culture. And I just want to encourage people. God's not asleep. He's not afraid. And if he's not asleep and he's not afraid, then I don't want to be asleep or afraid either. Yeah. And you just made the point that every one of us has a significant role to play on his timeline. There's a purpose and a call 
on each one of us. Some of us are so overwhelmed that we've simply withdrawn. Mm -hmm. We we don't know where to begin, where to put our hand in. What do you say to moms, to families who are seeing what's happening in our culture and don't even know where to begin because it is so overwhelming and maybe have lost confidence that God is at work, that he could possibly use me in the midst of all that's happening? Yeah, you know, this is such a great question. And I think a lot of us are feeling it now. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we're not feeling overwhelmed by what's going on in the culture, we're not paying attention. Right. But I was just reading to my podcast audience the other day out of Jeremiah 29, right, talking, you know, this is the prophet Jeremiah talking to the Israelites who are in the midst of a Babylonian captivity. Why were they there? Because I disobeyed God again and again and again. We can learn a lot from the Israelites. And yet God's instruction through Jeremiah to them in the midst of this captivity was have children, plant vineyards, give your sons and your daughters in marriage. The Bible actually says, pray for the peace and prosperity of the city in which God has put you, because if it prospers, you also prosper. And I think that's the answer. So when people say to me, I don't know what to do, I'm overwhelmed, I I will usually say, what is the issue? That just makes your heart break. Is it abortion? Is it what's happening to our children through the lie that is transgenderism? What is it that God has burdened your heart for? Chances are that's the area that God wants you to speak into. We can't speak into every single area of the culture, right? And so it's asking the Lord. I also love to tell moms because, you know, I have seven children, obviously, and I have a passion for mothers. If there's a mother listening to this and she's got little ones at home and she's a nursing infant and she's, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking to her right? Prayer is a powerful weapon. If you're in a season of life right now that defies you doing anything besides just, you know, wrangling your children and keeping your home, God understands that too. And there's power in prayer. There's so much power in it. And so no matter where we are, whatever season of life we're in, God wants to use us. I think the question is just going before him and saying, Father, what what does it look like for me in this season of my life? I think that the Lord is raising up a generation of young people, this generation of young people asking more questions mm-hmm. than my generation. You know, I grew up in the 70s and we were too arrogant to ask the questions, right? Because we had it all figured out. This generation is looking around going, something's wrong. Something's really wrong. And they're starting to ask questions. We need to be there with the answers that come from the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. It's an amazing time to be a Christian. I don't feel discouraged. I, I, I'm angry, if I'm honest. I'm angry at they're attacking our children in particular. But I'm not discouraged because I know that God's always at work. And so my friend Mike Ferris always says, you know, the best way to lose a battle, don't show up to fight. Mm. Yeah, and far too many of us have simply chosen not to show up. Yeah, it's true. And we don't yeah. show up alone. God is in us. He is for us. He is with us. And we just need to have the courage by the power of his spirit to step forward and do what he's calling us to do. Yeah, it's so true. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned that I ran for Congress last year. One of the most difficult things that I have ever done, ever Mm -hmm. tried to undertake. And uh, we came very close to winning the primary in Washington's third congressional district. And my takeaway from that was that when God calls us to do something, he's not necessarily calling us to win. He's calling us to obey. We learn through obedience. And I learned that there are bad people, frankly, on both sides of the political aisle. We are called to be salt and light wherever we go. And my friend Rob McCoy came up here and campaigned with me, with uh, Rick Green and some other just powerhouses from around the country. And I told him one day, one morning when I went out to campaign, I said, I'm just so tired. Not only that, but I'm starting to get afraid. You know, people sending me hate mail and Mm -hmm. death threats and all. And he looked at me and he said, I don't ever want to hear the word afraid come out of your mouth again. He said, either you're here because God appointed you for this time in history or you're not here and you are here. And so nothing's going to take you out before the Lord of Heaven's army says it's time. And so you can walk this thing out in confidence boldly. Because you know that the Lord is by your side. And he said, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. And that was pivotal 
Mm -hmm. uh, in my run for Congress because it took the fear out of the way that I was operating. And the Lord said, don't be afraid. And I think if Christians could get that, if we could really get it deep down into our hearts, we would start showing up for school board meetings. We would start going to the library boards. We would start speaking out about what's happening to our children, knowing that our hands and our lives and our times belong to the Mm -hmm. Lord. There's more of my conversation with Heidi St. John. You can find it at ChristianOutlook.com. Coming up, plain talk on gender. If you have to depend on pronouns and unsuitable hormones and scalpels to make a supposed transition from what you are to what you are not, it is a lie. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Over the last five or six years, we've witnessed some disturbing and dramatic changes. Case in point, the number of people who have undergone a transgender surgery tripled from 2016 to 2019. In the year 2016, there were just under 14,000 health system encounters for gender identity disorders. But in 2020, that number dramatically increased to 38,470. So it's not just your impression that things have rapidly changed. We're facing a dramatic and distressing trend. The obvious question, do the scriptures offer some insight and understanding for Christians? Grant Horner is a professor at the Masters University in Santa Clarita, California. He was a guest of John Hall and Kathy Emmons on Word 101.5 FM in Pittsburgh. Let's talk about what's happening around the world, but really what's happening here in the United States, that apparently mistakes have been made, and we need to fix these mistakes. Our gender identity somehow is messed up, and so we can change this identity, yeah? Yeah, you know, the libraries all over the United States are moving George Orwell's dystopian novel 1984 into the nonfiction section. Even Orwell could not have imagined how bizarre this is, and it it all has to do with language. It looks like the world has suddenly lost its mind. I think, theologically speaking, what's happening is that we are witnessing a rapid unfurling of a tightly wound package of lunacy, psychosis, pathology, confusion. But at the root, it's rebellion against God in whose image we're made and whose image in us, because we're fallen, we hate and we want to erase and eradicate and efface and obliterate that image of God in us because we hate that we carry around our own judgment in us. And it's taking the form currently of this this kind of what I call the transgender movement, an attempt to completely remove the way that God has designed us. And, of course, the secondary effect of that is to destroy the family, which is how men and women have always reproduced the image of God with their children. But wait, Grant, by you saying this, you're a hate-filled bigot. Um, You know what? I don't identify as a hate-filled bigot. I identify as a loving person who tells the truth. And if you don't handle how I identify myself, you must be a hate-filled bigot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm, Okay. But I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. I was a woman trapped in a man's body, but then I was born and I got all better. So, Grant, talk about how you see the conversation uh, around identity and sexuality happening. Is there a conversation? Yeah. What do you get from that conversation? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, if you want to do the, the, the most basic piece of research, you can find online copies of a famous essay from about 40, 45 years ago by a scholar named Gail Rubin. It's called Thinking Sex, Thinking Sex. And this is really what provides the kind of academic, supposedly intellectual background of gender and sexuality studies of all different kinds. Now, in public, I simply do not use the word gender. It is a, a nice little piece of rhetorical magic. And so what happens with that little piece of rhetorical magic, when people don't think it through, is this idea that somehow gender and sex may be related, but aren't necessarily constitutive of and causative of one another. What people have always thought, which seems to be natural, it seems to be scientific, it seems to be based in material, biological, chromosomal DNA reality is that you are born male or you are born a female. It's wired into the blueprint of your chromosomal design. That's what you carry with you. As a general rule, if you have XX, you feel like a woman. If you have XY, you feel like a man. You can reproduce in certain ways and so on and so forth. Some people maybe don't quite feel all those things all the time. I think that's a result of the fall, the psychological damage of the fall. But that doesn't mean that you can change from one thing to another. Humanity corporately and humans individually are not now suddenly and never will be changing our nature or altering our identity or beginning to inhabit our authentic self after some sort of transition from a previous false existence. It doesn't happen. If you have to depend on pronouns and unsuitable hormones and scalpels to make a supposed transition from what you are to what you are not, you're going to have my pity, you're going to have my concern, but you're not going to have my cooperation because it is a lie. And there's a significant difference between transmutation and transmutilation, like a moth transmutes into a butterfly because that's its nature, that's its design. The very fact that chemical and surgical mutilation is required to make a disturbed, uh, 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 psychologically disturbed individual think that they are a woman but now a trans man shows that it's unnatural. How in the world could surgery change what you are? It's simply a form of mutilation, and it's, and it's horrifying and sad. And all of the data that is out there shows that the psychological and emotional struggles, and I would say spiritual struggles as well, and the suicidal ideation and depression of people who are involved in the trans experience, there is no change, zero change at any point during the transition process. They sadly commit suicide and, and are depressed at the same rate and sometimes higher rates after going through these transition processes. Um, Grant, so talk to me about what you think gender dysphoria is. Sure. So when people experience gender dysphoria, and a lot of research has, has been coming out recently on the fact that gender dysphoria has gone through the roof. I mean, it's increased 15 to 20,000 percent its mentions in popular culture as well as scholarly literature. And it's clearly linked to this kind of social media virality um, uh, complex, as I call it. The question really, though, goes back to the question of identity, this whole idea of, well, I identify as or I feel like Identity is a very interesting word. You don't want to make too many philosophical conclusions based on etymology, but identitas is a Latin word that is the root of our word identity. And psychology today defines on, uh, on their website, identity encompasses memories, experiences, relationships, and values that create one's sense of self, right? So that's your, that's, that's your feeling with who you are. That's your internal conversation. This is who and what I am. The amalgamation creates, this is psychology today again, this amalgamation creates a steady sense of who one is over time. So 
I'm Grant. I was born Grant. Around four or five years old, I understood my name was Grant, that I was a little boy, that my mom was Liz and my dad was Wiz, and I lived in Virginia and so on and so forth. And so over time, I have a fairly steady sense of identity if I'm psychologically healthy. So the question is, if we go back and look through the ancient world, I'm talking about the ancient Greeks and Romans, I'm talking about mm-hmm. all of Western culture in the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, and into the modern world, no one ever talked about this idea of identity. The Latin word identitas or idem means the same. For instance, if you write a paper in college and you cite a source and then you cite it four times in a row in your footnotes, you put ibid instead of writing out the whole source again in your footnote. Ibid means in the same place. In other words, when they use the word identity, it simply meant the same. So when you see in the Bible, God says, I am that I am. It is God saying, I am who I am. So when Jesus says that in front of the Pharisees, right, in John chapter 8, John chapter 10, he's saying, I am the I am, which is why they want to take up the stones and stone him. He's claiming that his identity, his self, is in fact Yahweh, the Old mm-hmm. Testament divine being. So for me to say I identify as linguistically makes no sense whatsoever. Coming up, human beings hate God, but God's image is engraved into them. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Johnny Erickson Tata with Johnny and Friends. Did you know that more than 80 million Americans daily depend on AM radio for conversations, news, weather reports, and emergency information? Well, a new bill in Congress would ensure AM radio remains in cars, because when cell and internet services are down, this free service could be your only access to vital communication. Visit DependOnAM.com to learn how to make your voice heard. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. As we look at the heartbreaking fruit of the sexual and moral revolution, one question looms. How did we get here? Grant Horner gets to the heart of the matter. Let's return for a few more minutes of his conversation with John Hall and Kathy Emmons. And so my friend Carl Truman, who wrote the, wrote the book that kind of got a lot of this conversation going, The Psychologized Modern Self, The Triumph of the Modern Self, he kind of begins with that idea of expressive individualism. We have become so completely openly and proudly self-absorbed that we think identity is, yeah. the way I put it is, that it's a commodity, that it's a thing we possess that we can go to Walmart and exchange it for something else, or we can sell it on eBay and then buy a new one over there on Craigslist. Right. But identity is not an exchangeable commodity. Yes. And so the truth is, as believers, that we are the image bearers of God, and our function is to reflect God's glory back to Him. Yeah, exactly. Right. And the primary way we do that is by bearing His image. So when God looks at a human being, he sees himself reflected in glory. Now, after the fall, that's all bent and twisted and messed up. We're, we're kind of like shattered mirrors. We continue to reflect, but we reflect God very, very badly and only partially. And you see this all over ancient culture. In Hierapolis, which is in modern-day Turkey, they had a temple that was built over a fault in the ground, basically, you know, an open crack in the ground from which poisonous fumes were emitted, poisonous CO2 gases from geological events going on far below the earth. So they build a temple over it because they realize any animal that walked by this crack, any bird that flew over it, would drop down dead. So they're like, well, that must be the gateway to Hades, to the underworld. And so they dedicated the temple to their pagan Greco-Roman god, 
Pluto, and it was called the Plutonion. It's the home of Pluto. It's the gate down into hell. And so these priests who were dedicated to Pluto castrated themselves, dressed as women with makeup and wigs and dresses, and pranced around doing perverted rituals in front of this Plutonion crack. And they would hold their breath and crawl into the cave everyone knew was poisonous and then come back out, showing that they had power over death. Now, what's bizarre is you've got very similar weird things going on now. I mean, it's almost like there's a combined cult of these men who are trying to pass themselves off as women and people worshiping this bizarre CO2 climate warming uh, cult at the same time. There's nothing new under the sun. It's the same old thing over and over again, and it's all based in a pagan desire to – as John Calvin says in book one of uh, and book two of the Institutes of the Christian Religion in 1559, human beings hate God, but God's image is engraved into them. And so the more we hate God, the harder we try and scratch and erase and efface that image out. But it's like it's carved so deeply into the granite of our souls that the more we try to erase it, the deeper it shows. Thank you for joining us for The Christian Outlook. If you enjoyed the program, be sure to mention it to a friend and send them to thechristianoutlook.com. Encourage them to sign up for our podcast. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pouchon and James Blend, I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook. She is spectacular.